This episode of Author Stories is brought to you by the Writing Mastery Academy. Founded by Jessica Brody, author of the best-selling plotting guide, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. The Writing Mastery Academy features online, on-demand writing courses, including the official Save the Cat Writes a Novel companion course, novel fast drafting, crafting dynamic characters, and productivity hacks for writers to name just a few, plus monthly live webinars on various writing topics. Go to jessicabrody.com slash hank to learn more and get your first month of unlimited access to all the content for just $6. That's right, just $6. jessicabrody.com slash hank. You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret White. Terry Brooks. Sheena Kamal. Matthew Quick. J.T. Ellison. Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford. Corey Doctorow. Brandon Sanders. Robin Mom. Ernest Klein. Jim Butcher. Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Kate Quinn back on the show with me. Um, we were just talking, and it, it's been a couple of years since Kate's been on, and so much has happened in her life and in publishing in that amount of time. So this is going to be a fun catch up for us. Her new book is called The Rose Code, and it is stunning and amazing. This is definitely a must-have for your to-be-read pile for sure. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Kate. No, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, So, Kate, you know, um, we were chatting just a second ago about you know the the pandemic and uh, the craziness that has been 2020 and now you know we're we're about to close out the first quarter of 2021 and hopefully the world is is getting a little better we've got some good news on the horizon thank god for a change um but you know i've i've been talking with uh, with a lot of authors recently about how this pandemic and the the lockdowns and all of that have affected uh, their creative process because, you know, writers tend to um, kind of hole up in a room by themselves for a good portion of their career. And, uh, you know, lockdowns, you wouldn't think would have a lot of effect on people, but there's something that happens when the rest of the world is kind of locked down with you. Um, what what has 2020 meant for you and um, how has it affected you? I think for me, and, you know, this is by no means unique to me. I have discussed this with a variety of author colleagues who have felt you know similar things. Uh, for me, there is a certain, you know, dichotomy between uh, a level of a level of you know, the fact of, of relief that, you know, we happen to be among the lucky people, those of us who are in the sense, you know, we already work at home, we already work from our offices, my daily routine changed very little from where I was actually where I was pre pandemic to where I was post pandemic, the thing that, you know, changed the most for me was that I was no longer going out to the gym, I was working out at home, before I would right. hold up in my home office. And for anyone who is already fortunate enough, like me, to be able to work at home, something for which I'm very fortunate, you know, 
daily life did not change perhaps a great deal, but at the same time, it really was quite difficult to maintain some sort of creative routine in the middle of all of that. And I know I felt a certain amount of guilt because there's a certain sense of, why do I have anything to complain about? Every There are many, many, many people who have it so much worse. You know, the only real change in my routine being the gym. But at the same time, you know, it is hard to fill that creative well when, you know, the world is sort of on fire outside your window. And for myself, it was uh, difficult to, you know, finish all of my editing on the Rose Code because I felt like I had the attention span, frankly, of a goldfish. So, you know, trying to, you know, get those edits done, make sure I put 110% of myself into the book the way I do with every book, you know, not just a pandemic book, you know. It was definitely a challenge, and it was one that, you know, definitely was hard to meet at times. But on the other hand, I do think creative people have a little bit of an, of a, an advantage in the sense that you do have an outlet in that we can time travel to other places in through our work. And I know for me, um, when I did finally get to the point when I was drafting a new book again at the end of last year, Really, though, everything seemed to be going so terribly on the outside. You know, the pandemic numbers were worse than ever. You know, the election crisis was in full throes. Everything seemed to be, you know, absolutely on fire everywhere you looked. But I was diving into a new book, a new world, new people every day, and it felt very much like an escape. So in that sense, I also felt lucky. So I, it really was all over the place. You know, I think it is for creative people as well as anyone else. And um, I think really all over the place might just be the the emotional mood for just about everyone in 2020. So, Kate, you um, you're a, a, an historical fiction uh, author. You take um, an event or a time period in history, one that might be um kind of the worst of circumstances and then find stories of hope in the midst of those times. Um, do you think 20, 30, 50 years from now, people are going to be writing books about um, what we've just gone through? They probably will be. And uh, I don't think I'll be one of them though. I think it'll be hard for <laughs> the people who, I'm not sure if the people who lived through it are going to want to relive it, even in fiction right. necessarily. Um, I do think that's one reason why, you know, historical fiction continues to be popular and it's specifically stories about the world wars, which I get asked a lot. It's like, why so much World War II fiction? I think it's comforting to look back at times that have been tremendously emotionally, you know, pressurized and, you know, tremendously difficult on a national stage, just as they are, have been in 2020. And then, but look at the past and think, look, look at all of that. We got through all of that. We can surely get through this. I think that's some of the appeal in, you know, looking at these stories of the world wars in being able to think we got through that. We can get through today. It's really interesting that uh, when you're talking about world wars or big events like that, um, it, it really can become a galvanizing thing because all of us in the world experienced World War II. I mean, for the most part, now we all had different experiences, but it's it's one thing we can all put our finger on and say, um, you know, I know someone that that this happened to or, you know, we're now we're still feeling the reverberations of this event to this day. Um, it is that one reason that historical fiction is such a. Uh, a resonating uh, factor with so many of us is it because it is uh, sort of a shared common history in, in some ways. 
Absolutely. I would say that's quite that's very much true. And I think it's something as well that helps highlight common humanity because, you know, I've heard a great phrase. I remember at a conference, which was something like, you know, the past is not just now with hats. And it is very true that, you know, when you're looking at the past, you need to look at uh, what are the different, you know, moral codes? What are the different, you know, daily things that are you make these make that time different from this one? Yet at the same time, we need we need to have the things that remind us that humanity is common and that the emotions and motivations that drive us have remained very much the same even across millennia, not just generations. And so that's, I think, one of the useful reminders of historical fiction and a very comforting one is to look back at the past and think, all right, these people dressed differently, they thought differently, they worshipped differently, but they are still driven by the same basic emotions and, you know, huge world events and, you know, times of crisis bring those commonalities out like nothing else. Kate, um, looking back over your um, uh your back catalog and all of the books that you've written, you, you've, you, you've always had your feet in historical fiction, um, but you have chosen to write in different time periods at different points of your career. I know you wrote a good bit of historical fiction based in ancient Rome, uh, and, and now it seems that you are focusing a lot of your energy in, in this World War II period, this, this mid-20th century period. What is it about a particular time period um, that uh, that captures your attention and makes you want to focus on on this period. Uh, why do you single out a a period of time when you're thinking about the work that you're going to be doing? Well, in part, it's going to be driven by what kind of books do people want to read, and there is certainly an element of popularity that cycles around in historical periods. You know, when I was first starting to write in ancient Rome, that happened to be one of the things that was selling because, you know, Gladiator had come out, and then after that it was HBO's Rome. These things had really made the ancient world, you know, a source of fascination, you know, in the public eye in a lot of ways. And so people were, you know, hungry for books in that time. And then, you know, that sort of cycles out, and, you know, it'll be back. I'm never worried about the fact that, you know, popularity and trends, you know, always cycle around. And it's not to say that I write completely to trend, because I don't think it's possible for writers to do that. First of all, we write too slowly to be able to follow trends, which come, right. and, you know, very quickly at times. But also, um, it's the fact that when you write for a living, you do have to consider, you know, what is going to sell as well as what is going to, what you love to write about. But no writer also, I think, can write what they don't love. And the fact is, is that I've always been interested in a vast number of historical periods. I have, you know, dozens more historical um, epics in my back pocket. I would love to write books set in. And it's just a matter of finding when is it the right time for that book, not just for myself, but for also the readers. Are there going to be the readers for it who want who want that book as well? And, you know, but it's but it's, as far as historical periods go, what draws me to, you know, anything that I love enough to write, whether it's on trend or not, is that it has to light up my brain in some sort of light bulb way. And what usually does that is it's either a historical event, a historical person or group of people who give me a wow moment as far as, and quite often it's what women have been doing in the past, something that has been done that perhaps is not as well known as it should be. You know, for the Alice Network, it was about, you know, women spies in World War One. I'd never heard that story before. Um, in the 
Renaissance Italy books. I was learning about, you know, the possibility of women in kitchens and women in, in papal politics. And I was fascinated by that. In the Rose Code, it was women code breakers during World War II. So this is the kind of thing that I tend to be fascinated by overall is enough to want to write a book about it, uh, whether now or 10 years from now, is is it some moment of women have done something spectacular and I want to do a little bit to shine a little bit more light on that. Are you looking for software that helps you bring your novel to life? Novelize is a web-based writing app which allows you to access your work on any device with a browser and an internet connection. Write from your desktop, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. Just get the novel written. Say goodbye to sticky notes. With our notebook on the side, you can keep track of all the important information you need to write your novel. We keep distractions to a minimum, help you track your progress, and encourage you to write more novels. You can even use the same notebook for your novels in a series. Outline, write, or organize your novel by switching between modes. You can write your outline notes while you're writing, and you can move scenes and chapters around anytime in the organize mode. Choose between the dark and light theme to help prevent eye strain so that you can stay immersed in your book. Novelize, the app for writers by writers. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website. Developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates, PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. When when you hit upon a a big concept uh, like women code breakers, okay, we'll just we'll just grab that for uh, for the Rose Code. Um, how do you then start drilling down to find? the story in that um you know they're they're great concepts women code breakers you know how did was this a thing how did how did this work you know and and how come we haven't heard these stories well if we haven't heard these stories how do you then dig out the details that then make this fascinating story 
Well, for the Rose Code, it was really a plethora of material. It was almost too much because there was oh, wow. so much written uh, eventually about Bletchley Park, not just the code breaking enigma machines, you know, how the codes were broken, uh, you know, daily life at the park, daily life at the home front, what it's like living under ration laws, under the threat of invasion, which seemed like a very real possibility. These are all things that factored in and they're all things that have many thousands of words written about them. Uh, but the, really the thing for the women of Bletchley Park was it seemed to me that, you know, you were starting to see more nonfiction about, you know, what were the women doing? And I was very grateful for that. And there were, of course, there were memoirs, there were autobiographies written by women who had actually worked there, for which I was very grateful. But, you know, the trouble almost was narrowing down this book to what story I wanted to tell, because, you know, at its peak in 1945, there were 8,988 people working at or around Bletchley Park. 6,757 of those were women. That is 6,757 potential stories. Wow. <laughs> and it felt like there were so many stories I could tell. It took me a while to try to figure out what story I wanted to tell. And, you know, even so, it's like I, I do regret, you know, some of the wonderful things that had to you know, I realized that will not fit in this book. I can't make this a book about that as well as this. And I hope I do hope that there will be more stories about the women of Bletchley Park because I do not feel like I in any way um, covered all of it. <laughs> so with that many stories, how do you narrow down and pick, um, you know, ones that you think are going to make a, a great story when, when there is a plethora of information, which is almost um, as bad or not worse as not enough information. Um, it, it, to me, it would be difficult to write historical fiction about something that that people could find out so much about. So how do you, how do you walk the tightrope of historical fact and writing an engaging story uh, that's obviously fiction? How, how do you navigate those waters? Well, I pared down to this book to realize I wanted it to be a book about two things. One, I wanted the reader to walk away with at least a, a basic understanding of not just the characters as people, but also Bletchley Park itself almost as a character in its own right. right. And I wanted the reader to know by the end of this, really, um, how did Bletchley Park work and how is it that, you know, masses of encrypted information goes in and it goes onto this conveyor belt of intelligence workers and then it comes out as decrypted information. I wanted them to have that understanding. So that meant then that there would be need to be multiple women working because women, when they worked there, you did not talk to even other people in at Bletchley Park about what, they, what you did. You were only supposed to focus on what was right in front of you. So I realized that meant I would need a number of different narrators working at different points in the park's, you know, chain on the conveyor belt. So that gave me something right away. And then once I realized I would need a multi multiple narrators, I realized they would need, to, I wanted women of all walks of life, very different experiences who become friends. And then it came from there that I realized I wanted it to be a story also of broken friendship. Because at the, and then this is not a spoiler for anyone listening who has not read yet, but uh, this story is, you will learn on page one, you have three women who have not spoken in years. They all used to work at Bletchley Park together. They used to be friends. Something broke them apart. You don't know what. So it becomes a story of not just the fact that these women are pulled together after the war and they have to dust off 
these old code breaking skills, but they also are have to confront what drove them apart and the fact of whether they can become friends again. And I liked that idea of sharing the commonality of what is the woman a woman's experience at Bletchley Park, what is the intelligence and how does it go through the park, through these women's hands, and come out into something that could change history? And then also at the same time, what is the human toll? What is the cost on these women? What is the cost in their relationships, their friendships? And how can that cost be borne in the years after the war when they have to pick up the pieces? So all of that came together and kind of organically came out of the research. And finally, it took some months, but uh, told me sort of what story I wanted to tell with this book. Well, and the the setting and the time period and and all of that are are great set pieces. But like you alluded to, the the real story here is the story of uh, the friendship and whether friendships can last and and really the the human condition, how we relate to one another. Th- this is a story that that could be set in in 2021 in 1947 in uh 1812 i mean the the story of friendships is lasting and can be told um on on any set uh, really and that's what that's to me that was the great part about this book yes i learned stuff i didn't know but this is ultimately a human story and um and that's what historical fiction really needs to do isn't it It needs to to root us in emotions that we could be feeling right now or maybe situations that we've gone through or will go through yet you know and see this played out by people that that are uh far from who we are it it those things kind of root us together in our humanity, don't they? They do. And I think that's, you know, really the best kind of time traveling. It's not merely taking you to another time within the pages of a book. It's placing you in another set of shoes and making you think maybe you thought first when you met, you know, so these women on the page, well, boy, they're different from me. But then by the end of the book, hopefully you're thinking they're not that different from me. I too can remember when I had a friendship that broke up and that I I wish I had handled better. I too remember a time when I quarreled with a friend and it had terrible consequences for both of us. I too remember a job that stressed me out so much that I thought I would go nuts because it was so hard. You know, these are still, even if we're not breaking codes in a war and knowing that like, you know, ships may sink or, or sail safe because of the work we do on shift that day, we're not doing that, but we can remember when you strip it down even further than that, we know what it's like to have some of these other experiences, friendships that go wrong, romances that are ruined because of secrets, uh, jobs that, you know, have a terrible, you know, emotional toll because they're so difficult. These are the things that, you know, are commonalities for all of us as humans. Absolutely. Um, so, so tell me about the three protagonists that you chose for this story, because um, you know thousands of people that that could um, have become characters. What was it about these three char- characters that intrigued you? And uh, you know, w- when you're thinking about the story and how it would go, what went into kind of assembling your cast? 
Well, as I said earlier, I really wanted, um, you know, women who would be able to work in very different places in the park so the reader would get an understanding of how the intelligence moves through. So at the beginning, you know, I, I decided I would have, you know, three women who work in three very different but very critical places in that sort of assembly line at Wellichley Park, which really was, you know, like a big, you know, intelligence factory. And, you know, at one stage, one of my women is a crypt analyst. Those are the, you know, the top brains whose job it is to literally just fling their minds against this wall of code and try to break it open just enough that the code breaking machines have a chance of cracking it the rest of the way. So that's, I knew I'd have a crypt analyst. And then I knew I would have one of the women who works the code breaking machines, the big famous bomb machines. You've probably seen those images on the imitation game, the whirling drums invented right. by Alan Turing. You know, you had those were machines were all maintained and operated by women. And, you know, that was hard, tense, dangerous work, but it was very important. You needed 110 percent accuracy all the time to make sure that, you know, those machines could crack the ciphers the rest of the way open after the crypt analysts were done. And then after that, you know, once the machines had this, you know, had the, the ciphers cracked, they could decode the intelligence. And then it was passed on to women with language skills, translators, because, you know, uh, information intelligence came out in German or Italian or Japanese. And then it would be passed on frequently to women with language skills who would translate it out to recognizable uh English that could then be passed to British intelligence. So I knew I would have a translator there. So those were the three jobs I picked. And um, for the women I chose to fill those jobs, I usually chose either women who were very closely based on historical women or who were composites of historical figures. Um, Mab, who is my tarped-tongued shop girl uh, who turned... Um, code-breaking machine operator. She was one of the women who operates a machine. And you know, really, she's only chosen because she has, uh, first she's recruited because of secretarial skills, and then she's recruited for the uh, to work the machines because you need to be tall and to get to the top of those eight-foot machines. So uh, they are short a person one day, and they ask for the tallest girl next door. She's 5'11". So that's it's literally that easy how she gets recruited. <laughs> And that kind of thing did happen at the park. So she sort of as a symbol of the, you know, the worker bee women who could fill any number of slots just simply because they had attention to detail and were sharp as tacks. And then I have my crypt analyst who is named Beth. She does not start out a crypt analyst. She doesn't even have much of an education. She's a local village girl who is already written off as a spinster at 24 and has lived her whole life really convinced that she's stupid and she doesn't have anything to offer except to be the daughter at home looking after her parents. And when Bletchley Park ends up recruiting her, she realizes that her lifelong facility with crossword puzzles and patterns actually has a very important uh, secondary purpose here and she can put that to very good use. So she becomes a really a star code breaker for the team at Bletchley Park and one of the people who really does the very hardest work of cracking the ciphers open initially, which was, you know, really, I still find quite inexplicable no matter how many articles I read about it. So that's Beth, who is very much based on some real historic uh, women who did some absolutely astounding work. Um, one, her name was uh, Mavis Lever. She was just a 19-year-old university girl who became one of the best crypt analysts at the park and who's was on the all-female team that cracked the Italian naval enigma and handed Britain the biggest naval victory since Trafalgar, which was the battle off Cape Matapan. 
So that was uh, how I got Beth's character. And then for my third one, I have Osla, who is a debutante, Canadian-born heiress, and uh, is recruited to the park because she has excellent finishing school German. And so she becomes a translator for uh, the secrets that are, have already been decoded. And someone like her would literally be reading Hitler's telegrams before the prime minister or the king get anywhere near them. And, you know, well-informed has nothing on the women like this. They were the, literally the first ones who were seeing this information in any kind of, you know, readable form. So she became my third girl. And I really loved making these women um, out of composites of real people. She was also very closely based on a historic translator named Osla Benning, who was Canadian-born, a debutante, and, you know, a translator at Bletchley Park. And like my Osla, um, she is the wartime girlfriend of Prince Philip, who at this point during the war is, uh, no one has any idea he's going to be royal consort. Uh, the princess herself, Elizabeth herself, is only about 13 when the book ends, starts. He's just a rather ragged young naval lieutenant trying to make his mark, and he happens to be dating a codebreaker who he uh, dances with all night in London when he's in town. And uh, she gets on the train after that and goes from London back, the dawn train from London back to Bletchley and saunters back into work to start start her morning shift, probably still in a cocktail dress. So I, history dropped that in my lap too. So I could not help, res I could not resist putting that in. That's so, so fascinating. Um, Kate, when you're writing a book like um, The Rose Code that with so many details and so many little character um, details that uh, that really make these characters come alive, uh, and then, of course, the, the backdrop of all of the historical events that happened and very real things we can put our hands on, it would seem to me that um, you would approach this in one of – of a, a few different ways. Um, either you would read as many sources as you could find and then work on character sketches and, and all of that and do a lot of pre-writing before you started the drafting so that as you're drafting the book, all of the work that you had done ahead of time just kind of informs what you're what you're writing because it's coming out of what you've already done. Or uh, maybe you're the kind of uh, writer who drafts uh, and then when you come to something that needs to be filled in you leave yourself a note and i'll i'll fix that later in 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 editing or or whatever um or uh maybe the the type of writer who um as she comes to something that needs to be filled in and and really uh worked out that you stop the drafting research that and then come back w which camp do you fall in are you a prepare ahead of time um edit afterwards or in the midst or or are do you have does your um have you devised a a, a different way uh, not to be unhelpful, I think I do a bit of all three. Um, I do try to do as much prep in advance as possible. I did, you know, months and months and months of research on this book before I began drafting. And I do a lot of work on, you know, trying to make sure I do some outlining. I do, you know, work on the character sketches, what is motivating them, what is going to be, you know, the, the historical, you know, things that tie into their personal storylines. And I do as much of that in, in advance as I can, but no one can do everything. So I do then hit the, the roadblock sometimes where sometimes it is something that you, you know you can't 
go on with you go can't go on writing unless you have stopped and researched something so in that case you know that's what i do but on the other hand there are times when it's flowing along and i can just put something in brackets like insert historically accurate dinner menu here <laughs> or you know find extant london restaurant for you know characters to be going on a date on in October 1942 and you know put that in here later <laughs> so sometimes you do that as well I, I suppose it, it's whatever the moment requires I love that um being prepared for for any eventuality is uh is great I think um so Kate as you as you finish up this book um I know that you said you were drafting something new at the end of last year um you know when you tackle a, a subject so dense and and so exciting as the rose code um how do you then decide what to focus on next <laughs> Well I that was a little easy for me I already knew what I wanted to do next and because I'd found a really really incredible story that was so big and so beautifully you know uh, you know popping right out of history right at me that I didn't feel like there was anything else I could write. And there was also the idea, too, that um, I knew this one was going to be a bit simpler than The Rose Code, which was something that really appealed to me because The Rose Code was a big, complicated book to write and to research. So the idea of something which had um, a simpler, narrower scope really appealed to me. And so... Um, it, it really fell right into my lap. I knew what, exactly what I wanted to do next. My publisher loved the idea, so I just went off to the races with it in uh, fall. And that ended up becoming the story of history's most lethal and famous female sniper, who was a Russian girl who uh, was operated during World War II. Mila Pavlichenko, her name was, and her nickname was Lady Death, which I thought was just absolutely <laughs> hair-raising on so many levels. And the thing I really liked even more than that was that, you know, this woman was a single mother, an aspiring historian, a deeply nerdy grad student, you know, a total book nerd. And then, you know, all she wants is to, you know, go be a library researcher, uh, you know, when she grows up, essentially. And then Hitler invades Russia and she has to think about a different path. And what she ends up doing is going to the Red Army and, you know, becoming a sniper, racking up an eventual tally of 309. And if that Whoa. wasn't, if that wasn't, you know, fascinating enough, she was sent on a goodwill tour to America in 1942 and meets pretty much everybody who's famous. And then also, you know, becomes, you know, such, you know, excellent, really great friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, of all people, you know. So I was just thinking, a first lady and a sniper you know, literally becoming pals. I can't do any better than that. <laughs> that's a story that's just begging to be told. It really was. And I really wanted to tell that story. And also, um, I was lucky enough that uh, Lady Death herself uh, wrote her memoirs later in life. So I had the best of possible sources. You know, oh, I at this amazing. point, it wasn't so much of a thing as with The Rose Cove, where I had 300 plus books to tell me about what I should do. Here I have I have one really fabulous detailed memoir and I you know I have some other books too but you know I have the memoir and that really tells me so much and it so it helped you know streamline the research process so much because I knew this was a story of one woman rather than three right. one very narrow focus of a war rather than this huge sprawling intelligence factory to cover and you know I had this you know 
I had one really fantastic, you know, detailed source on this material rather than, you know, a whole library of them. <laughs> so all those things together helped me pick the next book, and it really did flow very well. Well, I can't wait to see that. Um, but in the meantime, everyone needs to go grab their copy of The Rose Code. It's available everywhere now. We're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for folks to find. Whether you like to read uh, old-fashioned paper or with your Kindle or listen to audiobooks, you can grab The Rose Code any of those ways. We're going to put links to it there. Um Kate, if folks uh, want to dig into all the amazing stuff that that you're involved with, where can they find you online? Oh, you can always find me on social media, procrastinating from my daily workout. <laughs> um, I'm on Facebook. You can find my author page at Kate Quinn Author. I'm also at Kate Quinn Author on Twitter, and I am um, at Kate Five Nine Seven Five on Instagram. So you can find me anywhere you pretty much find social media. Although I, I am not on TikTok, I refuse. I'm not a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Kate, this has been so much fun uh, catching up. We're going to send everyone to grab their copy of The Rose Code. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. No, it was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience, and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. The Bad Company Complete Series Omnibus, books one through seven. Humanity's greatest export, justice. Space is a dangerous place, even for the wary, especially for the unprepared. The aliens have no idea. Here comes the Bad Company. The Bad Company Book 1, Colonel Terry Henry Walton, takes his warriors into battle for a price in this first installment of The Bad Company. He believes in the moral high ground and is happy to get paid for his role in securing it. Set in the Cutharian Gambit universe, Terry, Char, and their people-humans, werewolves, were-tigers, and vampires 
form the core of the bad company's direct action branch, a private conflict solution enterprise. Join them as they fight their way across Tissakinen 4, where none of the warring parties were what they expected. The seven-book series Omnibus includes The Bad Company, Blockade, Price of Freedom, Liberation, Destroyer, Discovery, Overwhelming Force. Grab the complete Bad Company series by Craig Martell now. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Anderley. Virtutus Gloria Mercies. Translation, Glory is the Reward of Valor. Fed up with playing the normal game, recent university graduate, ex-cum laude, ex-soccer star, ex-popular and mostly broke Cara Madonna changes her life when she decides to research how to be a witch and believes it. Cara didn't want to go back east and deal with her overbearing mom, so when university was done, she stayed behind in Los Angeles. Little did she realize how controlling moms can be from the other side of the country. Feeling a little desperate to make her own way, she buys a few books on business and one on a lark, How to Be a Badass Witch. That's when the trouble started. Find out just what trouble a young woman can get into when the magic just might be real. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Andrews.